A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, friends, to the Experiential Theology podcast. Today, we're going to tackle another article by P.T. Forsyth. This one is written in 1908. It is titled, The Distinctive Thing in Christian Experience. I will drop the links in the podcast description so that you can download and you can read and study with us. Before we begin, uh, I want to talk about something that he mentions in the in the essay, he talks about the difference between objective and subjective, speaking of the way people did theology in his day. By objective, he's talking about the way older Protestantism did theology, which was, of course, very much rooted in the Bible, the New Testament, pointing back to Jesus and the event of faith that occurred in his life. It, that's what he means by objective theology. Of course, we have to say that all of these things are still events that are interpreted by faith in the New Testament, but they're objective in the sense that they're not, they are not part of your own conceptuality, thinking, but it's something rooted outside of you in, in the Bible and in the events of the New Testament. Uh, talks about. He also talks about doing theology subjectively, which again, in the context, he's talking about liberal Protestant theologians. And for them, the way to do theology is you have to rely on reason, the critical historical method, experience, science, and whatever insights you could glean from the culture of the day. So when we throw these terms around, that's what we're talking about. Of course, we know that in today's day and age, we realize that you cannot really separate. So, so you cannot so cleanly separate this objective versus the objective because even when we talk about objective realities, uh, they are always interpreted by us individually or in our communities of faith. So bear that in mind. As usual, my friend Ben Nasmith is here with me to help us out. And before we begin, uh, I think he probably has a few more words about this essay, and then uh, we're going to begin talking about it. Hi, Ben. Hi there. Yeah, so I think that the theme for today, as we read this essay, is to, is, here's our theme. How do we strike a balance between a subjective approach to faith and an objective approach to faith? Uh, I, Another way to look at it too, I think another definition of subjective and objective sort of outside of this context is that um, subjective has to do with perspective and my perspective relative to me as a subject. Um, objective has to do with the thing itself that, that we're trying to describe or, or, or look at. Uh, and so I have no, I think philosophers have sort of beat this beat this to death, uh, even though it's endlessly fascinating. Like I have no direct access to anything objective. Everything that I access, I access in a subjective way because I am a subject. Uh, and yet on the other hand, um, I sort of, it's a complicated question, but I, I do trust that 
my subjective experiences are due to objective uh, facts out there in the world. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I, an easy way to understand this is is to look at partisanship in politics. The same stuff is happening in the world, and objectively, um, but often you get two sides interpreting it very differently. So those are two subjective perspectives on the same objective stuff. Um, and, and, and so there's clearly a big difference between subjectivity and objectivity. And often we try to be objective, but we also have to remember that we are subjects and we can only go so far in our search for objectivity. Right. Okay, well, let's begin by talking about the two historic streams that P.T. Forces talks about in this essay. So he begins talking about how the modern Protestantism of his day, this is 1908, so 100 years ago, he says that it is the result of the mixing of two sources, right? He talks about these two being the Reformation movement and what he, what he names the Illumination. All right, what yeah. can we say about that? Maybe I'll just read his description of it. Uh, he says these two historic streams are the Reformation and the Illumination. I'm quoting here, he continues. He says, the Reformation from the 16th century and the diversified movement, which marked the 18th century, which is compendiously known as the Illumination. They are the old Protestantism and the new, the one resting on the objectivity of a given revelation, the other on the subjectivity of human nature or thought the one finding its standard in a divine intervention, the other in imminent human reason, more or less generously construed, the one emphasizing a divine revelation or a divine redemption and the other human goodness and its substantial sufficiency. So that's what, that's how he defines these two streams. Um, yeah, and so this essay is in a, in a it, it's broken down in this sense. First, he, he wants to say, uh, that we need to find a way to have some, we need to take the best of objectivity and the best of subjectivity as we trigger, figure out how to do theology. We can't just go hard to one side or the other. Uh, but on the other hand, he will really, he will take a stand on the objective side if he's forced to choose between these two streams in, in Christianity, because he thinks that the treasures of the Christian faith are, are ultimately on the side of the Reformation and not on the side of the Illumination. Uh, and we'll kind of get to that as we go. Yeah. Excellent, thank you. Now, let's move on and talk about why, why does he feel that we need a synthesis? So in other words, he doesn't reject either or the other, but he feels that we have to, like you say, take the best from both camps, even if at the end of the day, uh, the larger portion, shall we say, comes from the objective theology of the Reformation? Well, I think that the answer is that, is that in his theology, um, his theology is in the middle. So he, he wants to use both. So something that he says that I highlighted and I wanna share is this quote. He says, in proportion as it ceases to be a kerygma, Christianity ceases to be Christianity, whether it die in the direction of sacramentalism or humanism. So what is kerygma? Kerygma is a Greek word, which means preaching or proclamation. And and uh, in Peter Forsyth's perspective, the New Testament, although it doesn't necessarily have a uniform theology, it doesn't even really have a systematic theology at all. 
what it has is a common kerygma. And this is something that he, he noted and observed. The New Testament has a proclamation or a message. It's almost like a, um, a recording, a record of the preaching of the early church more than it is a record of the theology of the early church. And he says that that is where the center lies, that Christianity is all wrapped up in this proclamation of some sort of good news. Uh, and it can go wrong in a couple directions. It can go wrong in the direction of sacramentalism. This is probably the objective stream where, where you want immediate and controlled access to the treasures of the Christian faith through sacraments, whether that's tradition, Bible, priesthood, or, or whatever, or a humanism, which is the other direction. It's the subjective direction where, where Christianity becomes a distillation of human goodness and human progress and human evolution and human achievement, uh, intellectually or morally or whatever. Yeah. So, but, but for Forsyth, the kerygma, the preaching is about the cross and the cross is uh, inextricably a moral revelation. Um, and, and that's what we kind of have to incorporate here. Excellent. Okay, great. So here we have on our notes, the real certainty of Christian truth can only come with the experience of personal salvation. When we talk about certainty, like even in the New Testament, sometimes you'll read a sentence that says, quoting Paul, and we know that God works everything out for the good of those who love him, right? Like it's not talking about a mathematical type of knowledge that you can prove and say, here, it's true. We can prove this. It's talking about a strong confidence, right? Like a faith-filled confidence that we have experienced God to work in this way. Therefore, we can conclude the following. So here I'll repeat, the real certainty of Christian truth can only come with the experience of personal salvation. So here, P.T. Forsyth, again, insists on the necessity of not just doing theology, talking about theology, teaching theology, but there has to be an experience of this theology that, that we're talking about. And there has to be a salvation, not objective, but also subjective. We have to experience the work of the Holy Spirit. We have to experience union with Christ. And if we don't, what, what is the problem with that? What is the problem with that? If we just do theology, talk about these things, but we don't have this experience of the power of the gospel. Okay, this is fascinating. And it actually reminds me of some things in the Bible uh, in the New Testament. So in, in somewhere in the book of James, there's a, there's a sentence where the author says, who I will call James, I don't want to be super critical, but <laughs> why not? Let's say, so James tells us that you think that God is one, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. And, and I, I've, I kind of always forget that passage, but it comes back to me um, from time to time. And it's just... But having a certain theological belief that God is one is a very little value um, outside of a sort of saving fellowship with this God who is one. There's that. 
Uh, now, I'm also reminded of something else along this lines in the New Testament, where, where I'm thinking in 1 Corinthians, for instance, where Paul is talking about uh, how the powers of the world didn't really understand the foolishness of God. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. They would have recognized that God was with Jesus rather than presuming that God was with the strong. Um, and so it is interesting that even the demons, let's just say, let's just say the demons or even the demons or even the powers or all the powers that led to Christ being crucified were theologically ignorant. They didn't know God and God's purposes when confronted face to face with God's purposes uh, manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. So, so there's, if you don't like that, you don't, you can't just sort of know stuff about God. That's not the way it works. You need to know God and be known by God. That's how it works. God is not the sort of thing that you can just know without it costing you anything. Um, it's not the kind of, it's not like a mathematical topic that you could learn without any sort of moral investment or any volitional gamble um, or any sort of commitment or surrender or self-examination. Like God is a kind of thing, is the kind of thing that you can only know through a deep investment in, in obtaining that knowledge as a pearl of great price to use another biblical phrase. Um, otherwise you're just on the side of the powers who act in God's name without even realizing that they're just acting against God directly. Yes, exactly. Well, what comes to mind, and I don't remember where this is from, probably one of the sets of the Maddox that I have read, and I can't tell which one anywhere. But just uh, how You've do you read we do so theology? many <laughs> <laughs> Well, not really, only like three sets, but sometimes I remember <laughs> passages, and I don't know from which one. Yeah. So it was in the introduction. So how do we do theology? We cannot do theology in a way that we objectify God, right? Like, for example, if you're doing science, if you're a scientist and you're studying, I don't know, frogs or whatever, you can dissect the frog. It's dead. You, you work with it as you do with any other object. And you learn things. You make discoveries. That's not how we get to know God. God is not an object. First of all, God is not dead. Secondly... <laughs> God is subject, yeah. <laughs> right? So God is subject with a capital S. So the only knowledge we can have of God has to be relational knowledge. It's the thou and I encounter that you've talked about many times, right? So we, we have to get that straight. If we don't, then we objectify God and therefore our theology becomes mythology. And that is not good. Uh, as of late, uh, I just want to share with an audience, uh, I've, I've come to have a new favorite scripture. It's in Romans eleven thirty three. I'll read it. It's short. It says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I've read this many, many, many times, obviously. I uh, love the book of Romans. I mean, I'm, I have to because I'm a Protestant, right? <laughs> and so this sentence, of course, comes at the, at the end of this long section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is dealing with election, what's going on with Israel, really difficult, heavy matters. But this is his conclusion at the end of the day. 
And what I like about this is that Paul is doing very difficult theological work in these three chapters. But what happens at the end? At the end, his theology becomes doxology. So he erupts in praise of God and his ways. And I think experiential theology, at least to me, you, you can tell me if I'm wrong, means that we want to do theology just in such a manner that in our study of God, his unsearchable judgments, his inscrutable ways, we come to delight in God and we come to praise and worship God because, again, the Holy Spirit is something is doing something in us that causes us to joyfully embrace the gospel, God's revelation, and what he's doing in the world through the Bible, through the church, through the spirit in, in all diverse manners. Yeah, I just wanted to share that. That's great. Yeah, okay, well, let's, let's keep moving then. The next thing on our list in this essay to talk about is the idea of experience as moral experience and the moral reality as the real reality. This is how Peter Forsyth can wholeheartedly embrace a critical Christianity, like a Christianity that's interested in biblical criticism, interested in criticism of tradition and critical theology, that he's not a dogmatist. He's not a partisan. He's not, he's not trying to promote, um, some idiosyncratic theology of his community as if they are the only church that has it right in the world. Mm -hmm. How does he have such confidence and such, um, how can he be so casual if you know what I mean, rather than offended by this criticism of the Bible? Well, how can he just listen to it without being offended? It's because he's not actually standing on he's it's because he's put, he's built his house upon the rock if, to use Jesus's um, to use Jesus's metaphor you can build your house upon the rock or you can build your house upon the sand. He's come to see many of the things that others defend as the house built upon the sand and he's building his house upon the rock. But what is the rock? It's this moral experience of God in Christ. It's the experience of personal salvation. And so that's what we kind of want to try to understand next. Great. So a quote here, it says, the test of all philosophy is ethical conviction. That is where we touch reality, immoral action. God as spirit is God in actu or in action. And especially in that action of the moral nature, which renews it in Christ. Okay. So here... This is just what came to my mind right now. We're talking about the objective way of doing theology and subjective. With objective theology, what comes to my mind is you think orthodoxy, right? The creeds, high church, incense, chanting. I mean, all the trappings of a high church that is very ancient, right? That's what I think of when I hear the word orthodoxy, right? When I think about humanism or liberalism, if I'm thinking in religious terms, I'm thinking more of Christians who are passionate about social justice 
and they want to see they want to see the church they want to see the world put to right they want to get rid of injustice and they want to make sure that god's will is done uh where am i going with this i'm not sure but okay <laughs> when he says the ethical is real how is he bringing these two things together what he's trying to do is i think that i think that this is part of the philosophy of his day in a little bit there was an increased interest in moral experience but i think it still holds true today uh, i guess what he's saying is that if you want to criticize my experience of god and to say that it's an illusion as many people have um, and do uh, what he's saying is like you have to get something more reliable than my moral experience. You have to use something that goes deeper than my moral experience if you want to unseat it and say that actually my so-called experience of salvation and my moral experience of God is an illusion. And he's just saying that that doesn't work. As humans, our moral experience is bedrock. The, the best we can do in our knowledge is at the level of our of our moral experience that's roughly what he's trying to do what he's trying to do here um yeah he, like he says he's basically willing to sell the whole to sort of burn it all down if the moral experience is a, is an illusion he says if the savior be unreal and my communion an unreality a mere mystic or moody mingling of being then there is no reality and everything is dissolved into cloud and darkness and vapor of smoke he says as well, my experience salvation is not a passing impression, but a life faith. It's not a subjective frame, but an objective relation and even transaction. The peace of God is not a glassy calm, but mighty confidence. My experience here is the consciousness, not of an impression on me, but of an act in me, on me, and by me. Hmm. Here's a direct contrast with the illumination. He in other essays, he talks about people who want to distill Jesus Christ down to a, a principle, uh, a kind of a moral axiom or a theme or something like that, that can be carried forward into the future and perhaps improved upon. And he rejects this. For him, Jesus Christ is an agent, someone with a will and someone who, who has acted in the past and who's acting in the present and who's acting on Peter Forsyth day to day and year by year throughout his life. And the evidence of this is that he feels that he's being transformed over time by something that's much bigger than his own desire to improve himself and by his own um, need to change himself. He sees his experience of being saved is an experience of moral transformation. And, and he, and he places, um, the moral at the center of his being. Uh, he's really a new creation as he undergoes this moral transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now we can, we can witness a moral transformation in somebody or in ourselves over time. Mm -hmm. It's there for us to see and notice. Uh, the next step is to interpret it as the power of the Holy Spirit. That's at the level of our interpretation of it. And, they, and he's saying that he has every right to interpret this as the power of the spirit of the risen Christ. Got it. This reminds me 
of a commentary that I was reading a long time ago. It was by a, by a Scottish Protestant. He was very liberal. And so I was excited to see what he would say in one of the gospels dealing with the issue of, should we believe in miracles still? <laughs> and so rather than get into the controversy, and again, he was a liberal theologian who rejected the miracles, right? To him, they were just myth, but it's interesting that he gave this story of a drunk, a local drunk in some little town in Scotland, right? Who became a believer and got into some kind of discussion regarding are miracles in the Bible true or false. And the drunk basically said, well, I don't know if they're true or false, but I do know that in my own house, Christ has turned beer into furniture and food. So you can't be that far off, right? And so this comes to mind because again, I mean, just think about it from this ex-drunk's perspective, right? He's not hugely, uh, he's not very theologically learned, right? He's probably maybe a new Christian. He doesn't really have anything to stand on, but his experience. And he, he says, look, since I've been a Christian, there is now food and furniture in my house. So to me, that's a miracle. And this is what all of this makes me think of. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So then the last thing we want to say is that if you start with experience, um, you still have to remember that your individual experience is limited and your individual interpretation of your individual experience is even more limited than that. Uh, even if something is put right in front of my face, I almost have to will to see it. I can, I can, I can choose to ignore things that are right in front of me. And this goes for the power of the Holy Spirit at work in my life as well. Um, and once again, th this is, this is like the frustration of partisan politics uh, is that people can and do choose to ignore something that is right in front of them. Uh, it's, it comes down to the will. We will to see what's in front of us or not to see it. Um, anyway, uh, so how do we get is there, can we do better than our individual experience? Well, in a way, no, I have to work with what I have. Um, but if I want to have an approach to Christian faith that's still objective, and it's not totally subjective, I need to recognize that my experience is limited and that the Christian faith uh, as something that involves more than just me is much bigger than my personal experience of it. That Jesus Christ is more than just the person uh, who I read about and the agent by whose spirit that I'm transformed. Uh, he's also someone who is transforming other people. <laughs> and he's also someone who other people have encountered in the past and in the present and in different cultures other than my own. And when I'm, when I'm dead, there will be people in the future who will still be experiencing Jesus Christ in some way. And so I just have to remember that my experience is really a drop in the bucket of Christian experience. It's all I have to work with, but it is not anywhere near the whole thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Would, would you say that the value of our experience 
limited as it is, is that it serves as confirmation of the proclamation we hear then. So in other words, you, let's say, grow up reading the Bible, going to church, hearing all these things. And at some point, these things that you grew up hearing are confirmed in your experience. Would you say that the value lies in how our experience confirms the message of the proclamation that we hear? Yeah, I, I almost like it's almost as if the value is in the experience itself. Like if I hear the message and I'm not transformed, mm -hmm. then it's dead to me and I'm dead to it. Christ is nothing to me unless I experience him in some way. Yeah. That doesn't mean he's nothing to anybody else, but he becomes nothing to me. And, um, and so, and so we really should, we really should be very careful about limiting the role of experience and saying it's too unreliable. It's too uh, subjective, literally can't trust it. Lots of theologians go this way. They reject experience. They throw the so-called illumination in the trash um, mm -hmm. because they're just worried. It's so dangerous to use experience. But if you don't use it, you, you miss out on it. Um, and you miss out on pretty much the only thing that matters, which is being transformed by God and Christ. So so I, I always want to defend experience. And, and then you'll never, and Peter Forsyth always did this as well. <sighs> Now he says something here that maybe sort of help us explain what we're talking about. He says, I am forgiven and saved by an act which saves the world. Um, so he believes that, that the act of God in Christ, that the obedience unto death of Jesus Christ on the cross um, changes the relationship between God and the entire world, not just God and Peter Forsyth. And, and this is interesting. Um, this is an example of going beyond your individual experience. Like, how is he supposed to know that his experience of salvation means the, the salvation of other people as well? Well, part of the experience is an experience of the love of God. This is Romans 5, 5. The love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. To experience God is to experience God's love for other people and for oneself. And so you know that God is towards others just as God is towards you once you've experienced the love of God. And that's magnified in your love for others as well. So, so we can get outside of this sort of limited first-person perspective Christianity and say things like God loves the world. That's an objective statement supported by my subjective experience. The experience of a love for myself that I know is duplicated by a love for others because I experienced that love for others myself as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, well, we have this really neat quote here that I wanted to read, and maybe we can talk about it. It says, this could be, I suppose, the conclusion of the article. We may take from the modern mind and its results so much only as is compatible with a real, historic, redeeming, final gospel. 
That gospel is the preamble and the subsequent clauses that contradict it must go out. Yeah, so this gospel is talking about it's real. So that means it's objective. It's historic. That means it's fixed in, it's, it's inseparable from the contingencies of history. Unlike, um, I think it's Lessing in his broad ditch, you can't get to the eternal truths from the contingent facts of history. We reject that. The, the God is revealed through a historic action of God in Christ in a particular time and place. And that, and every time God is revealed, it's always in a historic moment, um, in a particular time and place to particular people. It's redeeming. Uh, we've talked about that a lot. And the thing we haven't talked about a lot is it's final. Uh, for Peter Forsyth, the illumination is about the evolution of human intuitions about God. It's as if, it's as if we're growing as a species in our knowledge of God. And finally, in Jesus Christ, we reached a high point uh, a, a high point so far, and we're going to continue to grow to even greater heights. For Peter Forsyth, that's a big mistake. Um, the gospel is final in the sense that everything that we need to know and that we will ever know about God is available in the cross of Christ, and it's hidden there. And the only way to go and get it is to, is to take the personal gamble and to get existentially involved in the cross of Christ and then to, and then to taste and see it for yourself. Um, we are not waiting for another to give us a greater fuller revelation of God than we found in Jesus Christ. That's an important part about, about his approach. Yeah. Yeah. And once you've got that, everything else gets built on top of it. This is, this is chapter one of any systematic theology that he would have written, which he didn't. Um, yeah. yeah, so Jesus has accomplished our salvation once and for all. It is done. The Holy Spirit connects us to Christ, actualizes that salvation, and enables us to experience the benefits. I think that's what's going on here. And uh, I think it's really important to understand that as Peter Forsyth says, the gospel is final, but our understanding of it deepens and widens as we study the scriptures, the theology of Paul, and even the theology of different theologians throughout the centuries. So... Yeah, I think this is this is very good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.